Welcome to Antioch Raleigh's weekly online sermon. We hope that you are encouraged by this word. For more information on Antioch Raleigh or access to our other online sermons, visit us at AntiochRaleigh.com. It's a joy and an honor to to be here. I know so many of you guys um, uh, met a lot of you this weekend and have overlapped with the Hills and and Andrew Korkos saw you and Grace Jolly, and it's just a joy to see a lot of streams coming together here. It's been an honor to get to know Steve. You guys have an incredible pastor. I know you guys know that, uh, but just want to give honor where honor is due. Uh, Steve has just a tremendously big heart. We haven't interacted a ton, but the, the little that we have, it's evident to see the grace of God on his life and the, the years spent storing up oil in the presence of God and it's just spilling out uh, over this community, and it's, it's an amazing thing to see. So, tremendous honor to be here. Uh, the only thing you really need to know about me is that I'm a husband and a father, and so I think we have a picture of my wife and four sons uh, that was taken just this week on a little family vacation down in San Antonio. Uh, so my wife, Steph, is holding the fort down uh, in Waco right now with uh, our oldest, Aiden, on the left. He's 11. Our second oldest, Paxton, on the right is 9. Our third oldest, Mason, is 8, and he's actually here with me on the front row. So I get to travel. Yeah. <laughs> he loves being the center of attention. And then our, uh, our youngest is Hudson there, six years old. And so I'm a blessed man, a rich man, and we've more or less been in Waco for the past 20 years. That's home for us. Uh, did live in this area for a year back in 2007, 2008. Lived in Durham for six months and then Chapel Hill for six months, helping pastor a church uh, plant there. Longer story for another time, uh, but uh, Waco is home for us. Uh, I do want to make note, I, I brought, I, I hesitated doing this, but I brought a, a, a book that I wrote last year on the Father Heart of God, and just brought a few copies in, they're in the lobby on your way out, if you want to just grab one, you can take it, um, at, normally they're like 10 bucks, but just take it and be blessed uh, if you don't have 10 bucks on you, but just wrote it for the movement, been part of Antioch for a long time, and the, the teaching on the Father Heart of God has been a really important one for me. And I wrote that as a resource for our movement, so feel free to pick that up out there. And then lastly, as an introduction, uh, as I was praying for you guys this morning, I, I felt like God just impressed a word on my heart that I actually heard from a guy named Mark Sayers. Some of you might be familiar with him, pastors of church in Melbourne, Australia. And uh, he had a word uh, for 2021 that he felt coming out of 2020 and all the chaos and disruption. And the word was that the world needs people of presence and not platform. And I feel like the Lord brought that back to mind this morning for you guys, that this community, your families, your neighborhoods, need people of presence and not platform. And, and what he means by that, and what I mean by that, is, you know, in, in today's day and age with all the access we have to social media, and, and so many people want to be like social media influencers and climb the corporate ladder and, and have a sufficient enough bank account to make a difference, make an impact, and, and so on. They want a platform from which to make an impact in the world. But really what people need is people of presence who host the presence of God, who know the presence of God, have met with God in a substantive way, and can then demonstrate the nature of God and reflect the character of God in a, an authentic way, and then be present to those with whom they're interacting. Does that make sense? And so today we're, we're just extending this uh, series on the disciplines 
And I get to speak on the discipline of solitude and silence. Super popular topic in today's day and age. The discipline of solitude and silence. And really, as you'll, as you'll see, this is all about listening. It's all about presence. It's all about abiding. And, and I truly believe that is what the world needs today are believers who've met with the living God and are infused with His nature, His power, and are demonstrating that and living out of that place everywhere that we go. Amen? Amen. So I want to reiterate that the, the disciplines are not a, a means to merit the favor of God. Hopefully that foundation has been laid sufficiently, and just the, the ethos here at your church would affirm that you guys uh, live out of this place of freedom in Jesus. You know that salvation is by grace through faith alone, not that any man would boast, not by works, that we are uh, counted as the righteousness of Christ on the basis of Jesus' merit before God, uh, that, that His life, death, resurrection, and ascension is the, the means by which we stand before God and have the favor of God on us. Are we, are we okay? Is that, is that a safe foundation, a safe assumption to operate from? So if the disciplines aren't the means of salvation, they are the means by which we grow into Christ-likeness, right? The big Bible word there is sanctification, right? Not the means of salvation, but they are the means of sanctification, and, and by way of illustration, I, uh, in college, I've only been sailing one time. Any sailors here? Anybody like to sail, have a sailboat or anything? Not many. One. Awesome. So I've only been sailing once, and, uh, but it was an important lesson. Actually, the guy who was mentoring me took me sailing uh, in the Brazos River next to Baylor. And we get out in the sailboat, and, uh, you know, you can use your imagination. It's not uh, difficult to, um, to understand that when you get out there, you're completely helpless to move yourself. Now, you could have maybe some oars or an outboard motor you stick on the back uh, in, in times when the wind is calm, uh, but a true sailor is not going not gonna to do those things. So, so you sit there, and you only have control over a couple of things, and the main one is what? The sails, right? You raise the sails. And by the way, I, I like to teach Socratically, so I'm not asking rhetorical questions. Feel free to... Uh, to, to respond verbally, if I ask a question. So the sails. So you position the sails, you raise the sails, and you're ready and waiting for the wind to blow so that when the wind blows, you can catch the wind and get maximum uh, you know, propulsion out of whatever gust of wind happens to come. And so there is a vigilance to raise the sails, to have them positioned rightly so that when the wind blows, you can move. Now the other thing that you have control over is the rudder, Right to, to make sure that the sails are positioned, the rudder is positioned. Hey, Michael, good to see you. Sorry. Um, it's like people, it's like blast from the past. I haven't seen some of you in like 10 years. Uh, so you position the sails, position the rudder so that when the wind blows. And I think that's a great illustration for the disciplines, the spiritual disciplines that you guys have been going through. The disciplines are like the sails, like the rudder, that we are always positioned. We're always vigilant. We have the sails raised and ready so that when the wind of the Spirit blows, there's something to catch. There's something to move us into the purposes and the deeper things of God. Does that make sense? So this discipline of solitude and silence is like another one of those sails that if we will practice it, we're positioning ourselves to meet with the living God and to be moved into His purposes. Okay, so 
I'm an introvert, like on all the personality tests, pretty major introvert. So you'd think that the discipline of solitude and silence would come a little bit more naturally to me. But I have two main problems. One is that I'm an achiever. So on all the personality assessments, like on the DISC, I'm high DC, if you know that, and the Strengths Finder, achievers in my top five. And so task-oriented, wanting to accomplish to-do lists and so on. So uh, my achiever can, can interrupt my attempts at solitude and silence. And the other thing is that I'm easily distracted. Okay? So it's not uncommon. For 20 years now, I've tried to develop the, the discipline, the habit of just daily quiet time, daily devotional time with the Lord for prayer, for reflection, for journaling, for study, for worship and adoration. But it's not uncommon to wake up and to you know, get, get in my space. I've got a chair in the living room where I'll go sit. My wife has another chair, and she makes her coffee. And to sit down, and, and you know, the bane of my existence and the blessing of our society, this little guy right here. So um, we don't keep this by our beds, but I do pick it up in the morning because I do so much with it. I'll listen to music on it and stuff. But often, I'll get sidetracked and open up email, right? Or start to think forward to what needs to happen uh, throughout the day. And it's just so easy for my soul to get pulled into the current of what is ahead of me that day, that week. And I, I get caught up in this productivity and achievement, and I'm, I'm just bypassing this space, this quiet space, to connect with the Lord. Or just straight up distraction. So I was prepping for this message, and I was thinking back, this is years ago now, but embarrassingly, one, one morning, I got up to spend time with the Lord, and YouTube is like a black hole for me. For those of you who know me, Robert uh, knows that uh, it's just, you know, one video leads to 30, you know. And um, I, I kind of lifted my head up one morning and realized I had been watching videos about, of flash mobs for 45 minutes. <laughs> right? you guys know what flash mobs are? If not, I would say, look it up, but don't. It'll take you down to... <laughs> and just poof, you know, the time's just gone uh, of this time that could have spent, you know, maybe a little bit more productively than watching flash mobs. And, and I find that that's not just um, specific to me, right? We are a very distracted culture. We're a very achievement-oriented culture. And I think those two things can become an enemy to this discipline, this age-old discipline that's been part of the backbone of the church for 2,000 years, the discipline of solitude and silence. And not only does it cost us in our relationship with the Lord, but I think this costs us in our relationship, relationships with our loved ones as well. When it comes to productivity, and I just kind of want to unpack this a little bit. I feel like this is just a word for you guys this morning. We're going to look primarily at Genesis 1 in a moment for a biblical basis for this. But, you know, when it comes to productivity, uh, I just mentioned it, we are a performance-based society. There's still this pressure, you know, to climb the corporate ladder, to produce, to, to gain the credentials, to increase the bank account. Often uh, in pastoral ministry, and I'm sure Steve can attest to this, we found the, the lack of boundaries that, that men and women now carry into the home and the effect that that has when the work-life balance is out of balance and work can creep in and kind of take over, uh, and not just vocation but avocation as well. 
there's this, you know, in, in kind of the Instagram culture, there's the, these added pressures of physical fitness and, and, and presenting a life that's put together at home and with kids and, and all the, the right social activities and FOMO and got to get kids in club sports. And there's just this, this engine that's always churning in our society. And, and not all of it or, or much of it is bad, but our souls can get caught up in the rat race and bypass the, the, the source of our power, which is that, that space that we connect with God in. So if that's productivity distraction, there's so many statistics, and I'll just limit it to a few here. Um, according to George Washington University, the average adult attention span in the U.S. has gone from 12 seconds in the year 2000 to 8 seconds today. Okay, and that sentence took me about 8 seconds to read, so I'm going to read it again. According to George Washington University, the average adult attention span in the U.S. has gone from 12 seconds in 2000 to 8 seconds today. That was kind of a stunning statistic, which means that you're probably not going to catch much of what I'm going to say today. So I'm going to be repetitive to try to overcome that, that barrier. Uh, in 2019, there were 3,142 people killed in distraction-related car crashes, most of those related to texting. Uh, the average American checks their phone every six and a half minutes during their waking hours. Every six and a half minutes. It's 150 times a day. Uh, Americans spend on average two hours, almost three hours a day on their smartphones. And by contrast, family time has shrunk to about 45 minutes a day. 71% um, of people usually sleep with or next to their cell phone. Uh, with? Strange, but it was in the report. 40% check their phones in the middle of the night. The majority of people feel that, that others generally expect them to respond immediately to emails and other notifications. And that's just, you know, a little bit about phones. You could talk about gaming and radio, TV, YouTube, Netflix. There are a lot of mediums that kind of suck our attention into these, uh, into these spaces. And I'm, I'm not anti-media, anti-phone. I do think, though, that uh, in our society today, we need to be aware of what's vying for our attention and what's, what's occupying our minds. So my guess is that if we were to go around the room... Most of us would admit that, that we're not satisfied with our devotional life. We're not satisfied with uh, the quality and the content of our prayer life, and we're not satisfied with the depth of our biblical study. I don't think we go around the room and, and find many people like, I pray too much, you know, I, I abide too much, like I study the scriptures too much. Um, maybe Craig, but not many of us uh, normal individuals. Um, I, I would imagine most of us have space to grow when it comes to these kind of more um, reflective, meditative, contemplative spiritual practices that, again, have characterized the men and women of faith who've gone before us for the last 2,000 years. So what do we mean by solitude and silence? And by, uh, just to kind of shorten that, I'll just use silence from now on, though historically the discipline has kind of been twofold, solitude and silence, but just to... Uh, truncated a little bit. I'll talk about silence to mean both those things. And to start with, I want to say a few things about what I don't mean about silence, the discipline of silence. Uh, first of all, the discipline of silence shouldn't conjure up this picture of like a Benedictine monastery that's inaccessible to just your average person, 
right? This is not reserved for, uh, for monks and nuns. The discipline of silence, uh, as we'll see in the scriptures, is for the body of Christ at large, regardless of location, vocation, stage of life, uh, family disposition, personality type, and so on. And that's the second uh, thing that silence uh, does not reflect on a personality type, okay? So I had the privilege of staying with the Postels uh, last few days, Mason and I, and Tom's personality is very gregarious, very um, warm and affectatious. Is that the right word? That just, word just popped in my mind. You can look it up later. Maybe it describes you, maybe it doesn't. Um, very extroverted, and yet Tom can along with anybody else in here, deeply grab a hold of the discipline of silence, the discipline of solitude. It is not relegated to a certain personality type. The third thing that silence is not is silence is not loneliness. Loneliness is really about inner emptiness, whereas the discipline of silence, as we'll see in the Scriptures, is about inner fulfillment because the silence should lead to the discipline of listening, Right? And listening to the Father and listening to one another, it brings a source of joy and fulfillment. So the discipline of silence is not this Eastern emptying of the self, you know, quieting the passions. This is actually about joy and fulfillment, should be the fruit of the discipline of silence because it's ultimately about creating space to listen, to receive from the Father, to be present with those with whom uh, we interact with. Okay. Yes, the discipline of, of, of silence is an absence of speech and noise and busyness, but it's so that one may listen. It's very basic, basic. You know, all of us are in different relationships, and if we are constantly distracted, if we are constantly speaking and never truly interacting and listening empathetically, listening to understand, then the depth of that relationship will be minimized. Uh, and we understand that intuitively, but sometimes it's hard to then translate that into our relationship with Jesus. David says in Psalm 1611 that in your presence is fullness of joy, right? David was a shepherd boy alone in the hills and probably cultivated this ability to, in the silence and in the solitude, to meet with his father. And he found in his rejection, in his loneliness, that in the presence of the Father, in the presence of God, is fullness of joy. That was his testimony, that in, at his right hand are pleasures forever. Okay, so we're going to look at Genesis 1 for the biblical foundation and then end with some practical suggestions. I don't normally do this, but I kind of felt compelled to do this. I'm going to read a long passage of Scripture, the entire first chapter of Genesis, a little bit into chapter 2. So uh, because of this whole culture of distractedness, I'm actually going to ask you to stand for the reading of Scripture, okay? A little liturgical activity here. Um, I won't have you repeat it. We'd be here for an hour. But uh, we are going to stand while we read the Scriptures. Okay, so this is Genesis 1. I think it'll be on the screen, and you can also follow along if you have your Bibles there. Uh, I'm reading from the ESV. That's what will be on the screen as well. It says, in the beginning, and, and I want you to hear, there are, this, is a, this is ancient Hebrew poetry, uh, and I want you to hear the refrains that are repeated throughout Genesis 1 and into Genesis 2. I'll, I'll ask you about those here in just a moment. So what are, what are some of the, the phrases that are repeated over and over? Okay, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, 
The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. He called uh, the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit which is in their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit and which is their seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening and morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening And there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves in the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The first few verses of chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the, all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. Amen. You may be seated. What an amazing passage. And there is a whole series of series worth of messages you could do on Genesis chapter 1. But I just want to pull out a few things that are relevant to our topic today. And first of all, and this is, uh, there's a great podcast out right now, the Bema Discipleship Podcast, B-E-M-A. 
uh, a Messianic Jew named Marty Solomon uh, does it. He, he kind of goes through the rabbinic traditions uh, around uh, the book of Genesis and on, in, uh, on through the Old Testament. And so I'm borrowing a lot of this from, uh, from his uh, teachings. He talks about how Genesis 1 is actually structured as a chiasm, and that's a, a poetic term that means there's a reflexive structure to it where day one corresponds to day four, day two to day five, day three to day six, and then you have this day seven, which is kind of an anomaly. And there's all this, this, this layered structure that was very intentional under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And basically, these chiasms in, in ancient literature were meant to, to highlight certain lessons. They were meant to be in their structure, in their reflexive structure, to highlight certain things. And there's a rabbinic tradition, a Jewish rabbinic tradition, that dates thousands of years now, that Genesis 1, that the main message, yes, it's about creation, yes, it's about the nature of God and the, the authority of God as the, the creator, and that refrain is repeated all throughout the scriptures, worshiping God for his creative agency. But there's a rabbinic tradition that Genesis 1 is primarily about what? What do you think? It's an S word. What's that? Spoke? Yeah, there is, and we'll talk about that. That's kind of the other half of what we're going to talk about. But it's actually about Sabbath or rest. And you have right there off the bat, at the very beginning, God creating the heavens and the earth, and then the Spirit brooding over the surface of the deep. And that's an interesting Hebrew word that can also be translated relaxed or relaxing. God is relaxing, brooding over the surface of the deep. And at the very end of this passage, in, in uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, you have God resting. So in some ways, it begins with rest. It ends with rest. And actually, in the Hebrew, in chapter 1, the very middle word in Hebrew is translated seasons, but it's one of the four words that can be translated Sabbath uh, in the Old Testament or celebration. And, and so to a Hebrew, that structure is very important, and you have this theme of God brooding, of God resting. And, and the reason that this is a, tr a rabbinic tradition is, think of the context. You know, for, for those of you who maybe know your Bible history, when historically uh, do most scholars believe that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, were written, and by whom? Who, by whom? Moses. And when? What's that? In the, the Exodus, the wilderness, right? About around Mount, Mount Sinai, that, that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses wrote down the first five books of the Bible. And, uh, and so think about that context. His audience would have been, his immediate audience would have been the children of Israel, right? Now, they've just been in slavery for some 430 years, give or take. And so how many days a week do slaves work? Seven days a week. And how many hours in the day? Pretty much all of them, sun up to sundown, right? Now, for the, for the Israelite who would have been reading this account here in Genesis 1, their value, their worth, for as far back as they can remember, would have been tied to what? Their productivity, right? How many bricks can they fulfill their quota? And when a, when a Hebrew man, and probably many of the women, grew too old to produce their quota of bricks, they were cast aside. If, if somebody was maimed and injured, often they'd be executed. What do you think would happen to their wives, their children, under the oppression of the Egyptians, right? They, their whole sense of identity was tied up 
in this notion of productivity. And here, in the very first chapter of God's revelation to Moses, is this message around rest, around Sabbath, that God, though he didn't need to rest, it wasn't that he was tired after six days of productivity, after six days of creation. He didn't need to rest, but he stands back like a master artist. You could picture like Michelangelo with the David statue. And there comes a point where it's just, you can't add to it or take away from it. It's, it's perfect. And he, he rests from his work like a master artist, and he stands back and then hands the baton to Adam and Eve as co-creators with him. But he rests from his work. And basically, the message here in Genesis chapter 1 to the Israelites is that your identity, your worth is not connected to your productivity. Your identity, your worth comes from the fact that I created you and I sustain you, period. And God models this idea of rest right here and then calls the children of Israel to Sabbath, calls them to these, these patterns of these cycles of celebration and rest to demonstrate that their identity is not connected to what they can produce. Their identity is not connected to their achievements. You guys catching this? This is a really important lesson in the fact that it's in the very first chapter of the Bible. It's significant. Uh, there's a refrain. There are a couple of refrains. You guys already said uh, one of them that we're going to talk about. But what were some of the repeated phrases that you heard throughout Genesis chapter 1? God said and God saw. Yep, absolutely. What else? It was good. Yep. There's one more that's really, there's several more, but there's one that I'm looking for in particular. It was evening and it was morning, the first day, the second day, the third day. Has that ever struck you as odd before? How do we normally measure a day? It was morning and then it was evening, right? But here you have it was evening and it was morning the first day. It was evening and it was morning the second day. That's strange. And for how many days does it say that? Six. How many days were there in creation, though? Seven, right? So essentially what God is saying here, again, through the Holy Spirit, through Moses, is that your day is going to start in the evening with rest. Today, we don't get that refrain. It's as if the seventh day never ended, that we are still participating in the seventh day of creation, which is one principally of rest. Now, when does, you know, in our, in our culture, in our society, when does our day start? Right? Alarm clock goes off, whatever time that is, and we end the day with rest. We work, and then we rest. When does our week start? Monday morning, you know, some calendars, whatever, Sunday. But for most of us, we think of day one of our week as Monday morning, and then we call Saturday and Sunday the what? Week end. It's at the end of the week. For the Hebrew, the week started when? Friday evening with Shabbat, with Sabbath. They start their week with rest, and then out of rest, they work. They start their day with rest. Their day starts at sundown. So they start their day with rest, and then after rest, they work. It's a completely different way of looking at life. And here God's message is, I want you to work from a place of rest and not rest from your work. Because your identity, your value is not tied up in what you can produce. It's tied up in the fact that I created you. 
I will provide for you. I will sustain you. That's your identity. Now, from that place, connect with that. From that place, go out and be productive. But you don't have to work for your identity. You don't have to labor for my favor. You have it by, very, by the virtue of the fact that you're mine and I created you. Okay, so that's one theme. The other theme you already said is the fact that God said, God said, God said. Adam and Eve don't do any speaking here in, in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, Eve's not even on the scene yet unless the, 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 the male and female, he created them. But she doesn't specifically come on the scene until Genesis 2. But Adam's created here, and yet he does not make a verbal entrance until later in the story. But this first chapter is all about God speaking. God says, God's creative agency through his word. And he is the initiator, and creation is this responsive entity that responds to God's verbal initiation. God says, and it happens. God says, and it happens. God determines boundaries thus far and no more. God determines what's good and what's evil. And the story begins with God as the initiator, creation as the responsive uh, uh, participant in this story. And that's a theme that goes throughout the, all this, the, the whole uh, narrative of the Bible. In the very next chapter, you have God uh, determining boundaries. Adam and Eve are, are called to respond to those boundaries. You have God speaking at Mount Sinai. The children of Israel are to respond. You have this fun story uh, at the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus shows, you know, his, his kind of um, pre-ascended, uh, or his pre-resurrection um, glory, and he's there with Moses and Elijah, and, and Peter, you know, Peter's always running his mouth. He's your consummate extrovert. Uh, and, and I think we even have this verse in Matthew, was it 19, 17, chapter, uh, chapter 17, verse 5. You have um, this incredible scene going on, and Peter, James, and John are there, and they're just supposed to receive this. And yet Peter's like, hey, let's make tabernacles. Let's camp out. This is awesome. And, and then God responds out of this and says, he, Peter, was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well, with whom I well pleased. Listen to him. <laughs> Stop talking. Listen. It's on, your, it's on the wall back there. Listen to him. And, and not to wax poetically here, but you have this imagery throughout the Scripture of, of um, Jesus as the, the bridegroom and the church as the bride. And not to be crass, but think about it even sexually, that the male plants the seed, the female receives the seed, and then, and then this... this living entity is, is generated through receiving and, and gardening, and you have Adam and Eve in a garden. All this imagery that God was placing mankind in to, to reinforce the, I am going to initiate with you. You listen to me. Slow down. Posture yourself to be a responder. But that's the opposite in our culture, right? We are the initiator, uh, my dad, I love my dad. He's not a believer. I do honor him. But he had a couple sayings growing up. He said, the golden rule is that he who has the gold rules. That was his golden rule in our house. And he, I remember him saying explicitly, listen, Mick, the meek do not inherit the earth. If you want something, you have to go get it. It's not going to come to you. You have to take the horse by the reins, so to speak. That's the message of our culture. It's a little history uh, note here, but do you know that 
there was a debate over what was going to be the national bird of the United States. Uh, right now, it, it, it became the what? Bald eagle. Do you know what it was going to be, potentially? The turkey, right? Why the turkey? Because the turkey offered its life to the pilgrims, right, to the, to the, the settlers. It became this source of sustenance through its meekness, through offering its life. But we're like, no, 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 bald eagle, let's go kill stuff, right? <laughs> but all throughout the scriptures, right here in Genesis 1, you have these two main themes that I want you to work from a place of rest because your identity is not tied up in your achievement. I, God, am the initiator. I speak, you respond. I speak, you respond. Do not bypass my voice. And really, ultimately, listening is about what? It's about trust, that I'm valuable, not because of what I can produce, but because of the one who created me and sustains me. It's about trust that I can find satisfaction in God's presence alone or primarily. And it's about trust that his wisdom is higher than mine. His, his protection and his provision will never leave me. You see this in the life of Jesus? There's so many passages we could go through. I'm just going to breeze through a few here. In Matthew 4, 1 through 11, he spends 40 days in the wilderness before beginning his, his ministry, fasting, listening, abiding in the Father. Luke 6, 12, he's spends all night in prayer before choosing the 12. What a monumental decision. Who would be his most close associates who would take the baton after his resurrection? And he spends all night listening to the Father, petitioning the Father. This is Jesus, by the way. It's kind of a uh, weird theological paradox. But God himself modeling this for us, dependent on the Father. Um, after hearing of John the Baptist's death, he withdraws uh, to find solace in the Father, Matthew 14, 13. Matthew 14, 23, just a little bit later, after feeding the 5,000, he goes up in the hills by himself. Uh, he's, all, he's praying early in the morning. Following a long night of work, Jesus gets up early to be alone in Mark 1, 35. After a preaching and healing mission, Jesus invites the disciples to get away and rest, Mark 6, 31. After healing a leper, he withdraws to the wilderness to pray, Luke 5, 16. Before the cross, Jesus seeks out the loneliness of the garden, the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, who had all resources available to him, is consistently working, ministering, pulling away. Actually, I should say that the other, there's my Americanism. He is pulling away, getting charged up, connecting with the Father out of that place, going out and ministering, working pulling away. It's like a, you know, an ocean wave ebbing and flowing, ebbing and flowing, drawing his strength from the Father. John 5, 19, he says, I only do what I see the Father doing. So how do we grow in the discipline of solitude and silence for the purpose of listening? I'm going to get super practical here to round this out, and we're going to have a little time to respond. Um, seven uh, uh, suggestions to think about. And, and I'm not spending much time here on the practical, you know, because I don't want us to click out of this, you know, this kind of Eastern Hebraic working from a place of rest and click into this kind of American, okay, the seven points. I'm going to go out and check the boxes. That's not the, pur not the purpose of this. But these are some suggestions that from this posture of being uh, um, accepted because of uh, our position with the Father, that we can practice uh, to grow in this discipline. 
Okay, um, you can throw it up on the screen. I think we've got them. But uh, silence begins the night before, right? If we're going to be like the Jews, that our day starts in the evening. And so very practically, we've started practicing uh, to putting away the phone in the evening. Now, we are in ministry, so there are times when we have to uh, have the phone accessible. But when we can, when I get home from work, 5.30 or so, uh, the phone, we have a little charging station. Our phones go there so that we can be present to our family and so we can create some mental space to just hear from God in the home. Um, Secondly, uh, I want to encourage you, if you don't already have this discipline, that for the past 20 years, this has been a practice in our home, is just to carve out time in the morning, right? Those early hours. It might mean getting up a little earlier than you're used to getting up, but getting up in those quiet hours for, for time in the Word, for time in prayer, for time in reflection, meditation, worship, and, and I want to encourage you in your time with God to carve out time to listen to the Lord, right? No healthy conversation is a one-way conversation. Like, we all know those people that if you're going to spend an hour with them, they're going to talk for 57 minutes, and there's like a, uh, you know. Like, with the Lord, sometimes our prayer life is like that. We talk for 57 minutes and then check out, and he never gets a word in edgewise, right? So take some time just to listen. Father, what do you think about me this morning? I've got this appointment coming up today. What are, you, what are you saying for that person? What can I take into that? I've got this issue at work. Um, do you have any wisdom for me? You happen to be God, so possibly. Um, you know, this relational issue, Father, what are you saying about this? But create space for listening. Uh, third, uh, don't check email until after that time, right? Very simply. Or, or pull out the phone to start checking the notifications. Carve out some time, 15, 30 minutes, an hour and then pull out your phone so that you can focus and listen. All right, fourth, turn off the noise in the car. Uh, this is a super practical one. I used to listen to the radio a lot in the car, and sometimes I still do. It's, none, of this, none of these are rules. These aren't, there's no legalism in this. These are just suggestions to create space. Um, so still listen to stuff in the car. But there are times where I'm consciously, oh, yeah, I turn off the radio or turn off the iPod and just drive and and practice awareness. God, you're with me right now. You're with me. What, what, are you, what are you saying right now? Just a little simple check-in and creating space. Similar to that, set an alarm every few hours to remind you that God's with you. Just a simple ping, well, just to pause in the middle of a busy day. God, you're with me right now. To be aware of his presence. Uh, practice a Sabbath, number six. Uh, we just started doing this. My son can attest. We are like 30% of the way there. Um, our weeks are all jumbled, and weekends are typically not uh, just kind of linear for us. Uh, our lives are all over the place. But we have tried to consciously carve out a day starting about a year, year and a half ago for conscious Sabbath, which is about uh, rest. It's about fun. It's about no work, and it's about God loves me. <laughs> And that's the theme of our Sabbath. We end our Sabbath. We start at Friday night, end at Saturday night with what do we eat on Saturday night when we end our Sabbath? One of two things. We haven't done it in a couple months because we've been traveling. We end with a pizuki or uh, build your own pancakes. So just a little celebration of life together. And then every six months, uh, my wife and I try to give each other a day away, half a day, something like that, just to seek the Lord for the upcoming season. Uh, the ideal is to not take electronics, <laughs> uh, but to just take kind of eight to five 
and just go and be with the Lord. And you're like, eight to five without electronics. It is possible. Like, it really is. Like, to just sit, read the Bible, sit and journal, go back and read through your prayer journals and stuff like that to connect with the Father in that way. These are some ways to, to build into the discipline of silence and solitude. In closing, remember, these are disciplines. They're, they're actions that we have to take consciously because our culture is not going to lead you naturally towards solitude and silence. Uh, the noise is coming at us constantly. So there are conscious choices and decisions that we will have to make. But, and yeah, the band can come on up as we respond. But my testimony, and so attention spans, I know I lost a lot of you about 10 minutes ago. So if I did, check in with me right now because this is the part I want you to hear. In pastoral ministry, and if we were to go around the room, my assumption is that there would be at least a third that deals with clinical anxiety, uh, probably a quarter that deals with some form of clinical depression. And, and this is not like the silver bullet. This will, you know, replace medicine, all that stuff. It's an amazing miracle of God that we have psychologists and counselors and, and medicine. Um, but that has increased this past year with the disruption of COVID. And my testimony has been that if we will do these simple practices throughout this series you guys have been talking about, fasting and prayer and these disciplines to raise the sails, it doesn't fix all of our problems. But the fruit in our lives, my wife and I, have been joy, have been a deeper peace, have been an awareness of the presence of God, that I'm okay that though I'm 38 and I don't have a bank account that looks like this and our house isn't as big as so-and-so and we don't, I drive a 1997 Ford Taurus station wagon, it's gold outside, gold inside. My kids like slink down when we show up at school. I, there are these temptations to be anxious, to compare, to be insecure. And it's in this space of listening, drawing near to the Father that I I'm infused again with, with, the re, with God's reality, with God's thoughts, with God's presence. And I just see this church, just the, the water level continuing to rise. The more you carve out space, the more you attend to the heart of the Father. Being, and this is what the world needs right now, beacons of light. Like, is there hope? <laughs> In the midst of so much uncertainty and so much change and, you know, modernism's failing us and postmodernism's off the rails. And is there hope? Like, who out there has tapped into, like, the secret? And that's the people of God. Like, that's our opportunity. But it won't come out of striving. It won't come out of being the brightest, the smartest, the best. It's going to come out of presence and connecting with the Father and living out of that place. So why don't you guys stand with me? In a moment, I um, want some leaders to come on up just to be available. Uh, as Annie, I believe uh, her name was, said that there's been a lot of difficulty this week. and We want to always give space for prayer and for uh, just blessing one another as the body of Christ. But before we do that, um, this might be out of the ordinary here, I don't know, but...